0: Just the best literature. Well hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, with me in the studio today is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfield. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Mr. Grant Turgeon is working on our summer education program, so we're gonna just uh, have to do without him for today. Now I do have two comments today, and uh this is this is by a person named Karen, and she refers to herself as Karen from Pennsylvania. Now, I'm really happy to hear someone from Pennsylvania is checking in on my program because guess what? It's my home state, too. <laughs> I grew up in Pennsylvania, born in Johnstown, love Johnstown, and, uh, of course, uh, I also love Oklahoma. Don't, don't misunderstand that. So here's what she writes to me. It says, today is July 5th. I finally got Mr Churchill's book My Early Years today in the in the mail from ABE Books. I started reading the introduction and it is very interesting. Can't wait for the next JBL and that is Karen from Pennsylvania. So so I have to apologize to Karen cuz I forgot I had this. And then uh here's the second message from Karen. <laughs> she says uh hi Mr Leap you keep saying you have no comments today. This is my second time writing. I thought, just because maybe being a female, what is so great about Churchill? Finally, decided to read Mr. Flurry's booklet on Churchill, too. And that's the Churchill, Churchill the End Time Watchman, yes, or the Watchman. So it says that she read that booklet, which is a good booklet, by the way. And all of you out there that know anything about the Trumpet, Trumpet.com, uh you can request that booklet through through the trumpet, and it would be it's, it's it's actually a very good book to read, and I might use some of it before the end of the series anyway, but she said she decided to read Mr. Flory's book on Churchill too, and now understand why he was such a great man. You should urge others to read the booklet so so Karen, there we go. thank you, thank you for the comments. I didn't have to say why I have no comments today. So you relieved that burden from me. And so, so uh, again, I don't know what a part of PA you're from, but we're from the western side. If you're from the eastern side, I love that side, too. On our last program, Mr. Turgeon and I finished with discussing the highlights from Chapter 4, titled Sandhurst. And that's a very interesting chapter. And especially the end, I think, when that chapter, he he says that he graduated with honors from Sandhurst, and he had so many problems with with uh, schools prior to that. So, so I think that that's good. Now, for today's program, I want to discuss a few highlights from Chapter Five, titled "The Fourth Hussars." I think I'm saying that right. But then I want to move quickly on to Chapter Six, which is about Cuba. Uh, I did bring before we start into Hussars. I think it's Hussars. I could say it that way, I guess. But uh, there's a, a reason why that we're going to get into that. It's it's a uh, army corps that he, had, he uh, signed up with. But a Hussar is a member of a European light cavalry unit used for scouting. The Hussars were modeled on the 15th century Hungarian light horse corps. And they had one of the most sophisticated and nicely attired soldier suit. Even Mr. Churchill brings some of this out uh, in his chapter. Now, this is page 61 for all of you out there listening. If you have your book, let's get into it. Winston is now 21 years old, and uh, the title of this, uh, this program is Young Winston Goes to War. Now, he doesn't go to war in chapter five. We have to we we uh, have to get to chapter six, but I think that this chapter is is uh, really really important, and I think it just shows his respect for his elders. It also shows uh, some of his thinking about war, and and uh, it's, it's he grew up remember now in the Victorian era, and it's so much different than ours ours uh, uh, our era today. Now he opens up this chapter with an interesting. Uh, introduction, and it is uh, he. He talks about, or gives a tribute. Maybe we should say it that way, to Colonel Brabazon. And uh, uh, let me just read the, just the opening. He says, "I must now introduce the reader to a man of striking character and presence, who at this point began to play an important part in my life." And he says Colonel Brabazon commanded the Fourth Hussars, and so so if if you look at if we go back in history and we look at the Victorian era, it was more an era of knights and ladies and things like that. But it, but yet it was modernizing as well, and and I think it's interesting. Here is a young man. He's twenty one years old. He, he's he's kind of known Colonel Brabazon for a long time, and he has a lot of respect for him. He said this regiment had arrived at Aldershot from Ireland in the preceding year and was now quartered in the East Cavalry Barracks. They're at Aldershot. And it's interesting that Colonel Brabazon is Irish because he spent his, what, first five years in Ireland. And so so he's aware of Irish politics and all that. But uh, he says Colonel Brabazon had been a friend of my family for many years and I had met him several times during my school days. I was complimented by receiving, as a Sandhurst cadet, an invitation to dine with him in the regimental mess. And it's—it's it's not that there was a mess; it was that's the mess hall, which is like the cafeteria. He said this was a great treat. In those days, the mess of a cavalry regiment presented an impressive spectacle to a youthful eye. Twenty or thirty officers, all magnificently attired in blue and gold, assembled around a table which which shown the plate and trophies gathered by the regiment in 200 years of sport and campaigning and he said it was like a state banquet so sort of the hustlers they're really well dressed they're in gold and blue and so it was really a big thing and here he is he was a you know a, a student and yet he was invited you know to these things and he said it was like a state banquet and so so uh Uh, He goes on to say that that he was really very, very honored to be invited to that. He said, I received the gayest of welcomes, and having what uh, seemed conducted myself with discretion and modesty, I was invited again on several occasions. After some months, my mother told me that Colonel Brabazon was anxious that I should go into his regiment, but that my father said no. Indeed, it appeared he still believed it would be possible by using his influence to secure me in an infantry commission after all. And so, so one of the things that, that Winston Churchill brings up here in a very nice way is he, he was still being, I think, negatively affected by his father. And, and there Winston is 21 now. He's, he's not a young boy anymore. And he wants to be in the Hussars. And, of course, I think his mother wanted him to be there as well. He goes on to say the Duke of Cambridge had expressed displeasure at my diversion from the 60th Rifles and so that's where his dad wanted him to go he wanted him to go into the infantry he wanted him he, he his dad thought if he goes to the infantry he's more likely going to get commissioned and can really enter into politics that way but uh uh Winston Churchill did not want to do that he wanted to go into the hussars and so so his his father was really really uh, kind of bad. I think he actually wrote Brabazon and told him, I don't want my son in your, you know, in the fourth But anyway, um, the the thing that happened um, in some ways that that turned better for him, one of the things his father said in this letter, he said, you've turned my son's head away from the infantry. And then essentially what Winston Churchill says, hey, my head was turned anyway. You know, I'm 21, Dad. I'm doing it. So, but but if you just go to the next page, it's kind of it's kind of sad. Um, uh, what happens is, his father dies at the same time, and his father was not well. And so, this is on, on the next page, page sixty-two. It says, "My father died on January twenty-fourth in the early morning, summoned from a neighboring house where I was sleeping. I ran in the darkness across Grosvenor Square, then lapped in snow. His end was quite painless. Indeed, he had." Uh, uh, long been in stupor All my dreams of a comradeship with him Of entering Parliament at his side And in his support were ended They remained for me only to pursue his aims And vindicate his memory And so but, but one thing he says there And I think all of us that have grown up And grown apart from our families and dads He said But I was now in the main The master of my fortunes <laughs> He said Didn't have to worry about dad He couldn't have missed his dad and then this is also where he brings out. He said, "My mother was always at hand to help and advise, but I was now in my twenty-first year, and she never sought to exercise parental control." Well, that shows a pretty smart mom. He's twenty-one. <laughs> he better get control of his life, and that's that's one thing that we also have to help our children. By the time they get in their twenties, they really need to to uh, step out on their own and and uh, you know conquer the world, really. And uh, I know I I uh, had some problems with my father, and I left home at nineteen, and uh, I didn't do a very good job of conquering the world for the first couple of years, <laughs> but I still lived. I didn't die. <laughs> so so anywhere. Anyway, what what he says here. I, indeed, she soon became an ardent ally, furthering my plans and guarding my interests with all her influence and boundless energy. She was still at forty. Young, beautiful, and fascinating. And this is interesting. He said, we work together on even terms, more like a brother and a sister than a mother and a son. At least it seems so to me. And so it continued to the end. And so so it's interesting. And uh, if you go into some of the other writers about uh, his mother, is they don't see her quite the same way he did. And we discussed that at the very beginning of the series. Now he goes on to say, in March 1895, I was gazetted to the 4th Hussars. And so he really was excited. And uh, uh, they, remember now, they were a, a cavalry troop that rode horses all the time. And so, and they had beautiful uniforms. So, he, you know, he was like a knight, a knight in shining armor. The thing that really he liked, he says, I joined the regiment six weeks earlier in anticipation. And was immediately set with several other subalterns to the stiff and arduous training of a recruit officer. So he's already he's already moving up, you know, in the ranks. He says every day long hours were passed in the riding school at stables around the barrack square. I was fairly well fitted for the riding school by the two long courses which I had had already gone. Uh, but I had I must proclaim that the fourth hussars. Exceeded in severity anything I had previously experienced in military uh, equitation. In other words, uh, being with the Fourth Hussars was a lot different than being at Sandhurst. <laughs> and and uh, the the only thing that uh, he really had problems with, he couldn't stay on the horse. <laughs> and so he said many a time, I did pick myself up and shake his sword from the riding school. Tan and Don, he hurt his tailor muscle by falling all the time off the horse. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so it was really pretty pretty tough. Um, anyway, he he did survive it, though. And so I, I think that's, that's uh, on some page 63, everybody. So you can read that. It's, it's really kind of enjoyable. Um, he says, though, that one of his favorite Parts of that whole part of his life was riding horses, so so he must have really got it all all figured out really pretty pretty carefully. All right, uh, he, he says there on page sixty four. You can I'm going to skip through some of this because I want to get into the to the other chapter as soon as we can. Um, he loved he loved the Calvary horse riding, and then on on he says it on page sixty four. Uh, page sixty five I think is very interesting. Uh, part of the chapter, and I'll, I'll mention a few things about it. But this is his his treatise on war, and and it it talks about the history of war. And remember, now this is Victorian era, so it's really different. and And he says that he thought war was magnificent, and now it's squalid. And so you see, he's he's lived in a different era, and that's that's one thing that's I think is very beautiful about this book it does give us insights to what the victorian era was like and i guess you know queen victoria just loved to to be out and see all the regiments in their different dresses and their different colors and all the horses and and all of that so so uh uh you know he, he said today and, and he's referring now he's looking back he's saying uh he says in fact war has been completely spoiled by by modern times he says, "From the moment that either of these meddlers or muddlers were allowed to take part in actual fighting, the doom of war was sealed. Instead of a small number of well-trained professionals championing their country's cause with ancient weapons and a beautiful intricacy of archaic maneuver, sustained at every moment uh, by the applause of their nations, we now have entire populations, inclu- including even women and children, pitted against one another in brutish muddle." extermination and only a set of blear eyed clerks left to add up the butcher's bill. And so so what he's saying is that that you know after the Victorian era we get into World Wars One and Two, then you get to real real crimes happening and of course we have the Holocaust and all that. And uh so so I I recommend that you read this. And again this is uh, uh page sixty five and it, you should really take the time to read the whole thing. And uh, essentially one of the other things that I think is really, really, really funny about him is he believed that there was a way to an act a war that was really uh, knight-like and it was graceful and it was masculine. And so, so what he, one of his things that he wanted to do at that time to fix it is he thought that the, they should have war games like Olympic Games. And so and you didn't kill people, but you just got out on in the field, and you you moved your troops, and you you know you you had the maneuvers, you had the you you, you didn't use the weapons, but you had them. And uh, uh, to me, it, it's it, that was really funny that he wants to have the war games like Olympics. And he said maybe if you won the war, I think what he was thinking maybe if you had the war games, you wouldn't have war. <laughs> so so you could at least you could at least pretend that that there is a war. So anyway, a, again, I think you're going to be really I mean you, you would really miss it if you don't read that chapter and really understand it. I think the the war games international he wanted international war games so it, was, it would be na- nations <laughs> fighting each other but not killing each other. So I think I think that's <laughs> that's really it's really an interesting thing. All right, so it seems like in this chapter he just has nothing but wonderful things to say about uh, you know Colonel Brabazon. And on page uh, sixty-seven he gives us a deeper view of him. He talks about his him being Irish. Uh, also, one thing about Colonel Brabazon that that I think is interesting is he's never he never was married. He was married to the military, and and I think. Uh, Winston Churchill saw that as a very interesting thing Um, he said there he said though he had always remained a bachelor he was by no means a a misogynist as a young man he must have been exceptionally good looking he was exactly the right height for a man to be he was not actually six feet but he looked it now in his prime his appearance was magnificent so so he really has a lot of respect for Colonel Brabazon and uh, there was only one Real problem with Colonel Brabazon, and that was he had a lisp. He could not say the letter R, and and he gives some really funny uh, lines that he heard him say. Here's one. This is on page sixty-eight. It says of the station master at Aldershot, he inquired on one occasion in later years, "Where is the London Twain?" It has gone, Colonel. Gone. Bring another. <laughs> so so he can't say the word uh, the letter R. So it's Boing, <laughs> you know, and it's twain so so he kind of has he picks fun at him the rest of the chapter, so it's really it's it's really quite humorous uh at the other end of this chapter, I think it's really sad his dad dies, and uh uh you know he he um there's some few problems with with uh, Irish politics again but the but the saddest part is the end of the chapter when Mrs. everest dies. And remember, she was more of his mom than his mom. And he rushed to see her, and uh, before she died, he really took care of her. He, he devoted his own money to take care of her, and so so I think that was that was really good. And uh, um, let's slip on now. Uh, again, the whole goal of the program is not to read the whole chapter for you. It's just to put I put out some of the real highlights, and so you need to read that whole chapter. And then it'll give you, um, I think, some really deep insight into to Winston Churchill. Okay, this uh, the chapter six on Cuba. Um, this is page seventy four, and I think the most important thing with this one, even if we if we don't get done with a lot of it today, or, or with a good portion of it, we'll continue this this next time. But at the very top of page seventy four, he talks about Cuba. And essentially, if uh, if you really understand chapter five, is Winston Churchill? He got into the right hussars. He got to the right way, but but the things he, he talked about in the in the chapter was the world was still at peace. There wasn't any war, and and the the young guys are trained to fight war while they're trying to find one. You know, and so so. Uh, uh, he says at the very top of the page. In the closing decade of the Victorian era, the empire had enjoyed so long a spell of almost unbroken peace that medals and all that they represented in experience and adventure were becoming extremely scarce in the British army. The veterans of the Crimea and the Indian mutiny were gone from the active list. The Afghan and the Egyptian warriors of the early 80s had reached the senior ranks. Scarcely a shot had been fired in anger, since then, when I joined the Fourth Hussars in January 1895, scarcely a captain, hardly ever a subaltern could be found throughout Her Majesty's forces who had even seen the smallest kind of war. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was upset by that. He went on to say, how we young officers envy the senior major for his adventures at Abu Klee. And that's, that was the war that the England was Sudan. And so, so that the, here these young guys are saying, well, when are we going to get our chance to make our medals? And and the point is, what he's saying is, if you didn't get the medals, if you didn't get the awards, if you didn't fight a war and not get killed, you couldn't be advanced. You know, this is the way to get promotion. And so, so it's like, I don't want to get killed to get promotion. <laughs> I'm thinking, boy, I would never have survived in that in that environment. But uh, uh, anyway. Uh, he said that they were always looking for for war now what what these young guys were doing when they weren't fight because they weren't fighting they were developing their prowess at polo and so so that's that is it's a big part of the british empire and even in india it was a big part of the british empire and still is you know some of the game the british games they still have you know even in india and he said that uh uh you know, actually it got pretty bad, you know, pretty boring. Uh, he said uh he wanted to be under fire, you know. <laughs> and he said, finally, on the same page, 75, he says, the age of peace had ended. There was to be no lack of war. There was to be enough for all, and I enough and to spare. Few in indeed of the keen aspiring generations of Sanders, cadets, and youthful officers who entered the Royal Surfer's service so lightheartedly in these and later years were to survive the ghastly surface which fate had in store. And so we know there he's talking about World Wars One and Two, and it, it, that the, the, the whole age of peace had ended. And he goes on to explain then what the military year was like, and I could see where it could be kind of boring. He said, uh, The military year was divided into a seventh-month summer season of training and a 5 months winter season of leave, and each officer received a solid block of two and a half months of uninterrupted repose. He says all my money had been spent on polo ponies. <laughs> so, so uh, even uh, if you read later into his life, he he liked to gamble. <laughs> he liked to race horses. And uh, when he was hit in America, uh, he was playing the stock market. When he came here, he says uh, the general peace in mankind had for so many years languished was broken. Only in a quarter of the globe, the long-drawn guerrilla war between the Spaniards and the Cuban rebels was said to be entering upon its most serious uh, phase. And so, so Winston then feels like, well, wow, I think I found my war. And so he decides that uh, he's going to get help to get into that war. He said, uh, um, this is on page 76, if you want to start reading with that. He said, It seemed to my youthful mind that it must be a thrilling and immense experience to hear the whistle of bullets all around and to play at hazard from moment to moment with death and wounds. <laughs> Moreover, now that I had assumed a professional obligation in the matter, I thought it might be well to have a private rehearsal, a secluded trip, trial trip, in order to make sure that the ordeal was one uh, not unsuited to my temperament. Accordingly, it was to Cuba that I turned my eyes. And so, so there was a, a a war going on between Spain and the rebels in, in Cuba. And if you think about it, I mean, I I grew up in the Bay of Pigs area. And so America was still having trouble with Cuba. And, uh, you know, it, it had turned communist and things like that. And so I, I'll never forget how scary it was, uh, you know, when the Russians moved in there and their, you know, neutron, well, a nuclear bomb could be really close to the United States. And of course uh you know that's not a, the best history in America either so anyway he he uh he sets his his uh heart to go to to uh Spain he was accepted uh to to be over there and uh, uh and fight the war and so uh if you go to p top of page seventy seven he said accordingly at the beginning of November eighteen ninety five we sailed for New York and journeyed thence to Havana. The minds of this generation, exhausted, brutalized, mutilated, and bored by war, may not understand the delicious yet tremulous sensations with which a young British officer, uh, uh, bred in the long peace, approached for the first time an actual theater of operations. <laughs> he said, when first in the dim light of early morning I saw the shores of Cuba rise and define themselves from dark blue horizons, I felt as if I sailed with Captain Silver and first gazed on Treasure Island. And so, uh, by the way, we will be reading Treasure Island in this series. So so that was one of his favorite, favorite, favorite books. And so he thought, well, wow, um, he's in a storybook. <laughs> You know, here was a scene of vital action. Here was a place where anything might happen. Here was a place where something would certainly happen. Here I might leave my bones. These musings were dispersed by the advance of breakfast and lost in the hurry of disembarkation. So, so that's all I have for today's program. But I just re- want to uh, remind you then we're going to continue uh, on our next program with this chapter on Cuba. So you can, you can catch up and uh, now and maybe read be, go back and reread some of those other chapters all right that's all the time i have for today's program our next program will continue discussing chapter 6 and continue on to chapter 7 of Churchill's charming book my early life 1874 to 1904 now you can buy my early life at amazon.com you may be also able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com karen did it so follow karen's lead You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to JBL at PCOG.org. And you can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading.